Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome uh, to this event, which we uh, intend to be the first of a series of um, public lectures by former British EU commissioners. Uh, the idea was actually the brainchild of our esteemed director, Howard Davis, uh, who by unfortunate coincidence can't be here this evening as he has to be in Brussels. And I'm reliably told this is not to put down a marker for a future commissionership for himself, um, as he is pledged to this institution until 2013, come what may. Now this series, this series comes hard on the heels of uh, two other uh, lecture series, uh, which we've had in the last couple of years, um, uh, one by former chancellors of the Exchequer and the other by former British foreign secretaries. Uh, both of those series resulted in... Uh, in interesting uh, and very well-received uh, books where the lectures were turned into, uh, into, um, into essays. Um, and we have great hopes for this series as well. So we will keep you um, uh, informed um, and put on the website as the details come together. As I say, we will have quite a few events in the series. Um, and uh, you may wish to put um, Lord Patton of Barnes, uh, Chris Patton in your... Uh, diaries already. He'll be speaking on the 21st of May. Now, I guess we have to admit that the idea of British EU commissioners has a certain intriguing quality uh, to it, a bit like penguins in the Congo, perhaps, or camels in the Shetland Islands, which is why, partly why I'm sure you are here. But more importantly, you are here to listen to a, a, a very fine legal brain and a very distinguished public servant, both of Britain and of Europe. And we're delighted that Lord Britain, Spenthorne, has accepted our invitation to share his insights into that very special nexus of relationships formed by Whitehall and Brussels, and more broadly, between Britain and the European Union. He has also, uh, as I'm sure you know, been a, a fluent and very passionate uh, voice uh, in this country for Britain's positive engagement with the European Union, both in, our, in terms of our national debate and within the internal debate in the Conservative Party. Um, he comes at tonight's subject from both vantage points, as it were, uh, from London and from Brussels, because he has also held some of the most senior officers of state in the UK, including the posts of Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Home Secretary, um, and Secretary of State for Trade and Industry. And, of course, he has been Britain's longest-serving EU uh, commissioner, serving from 1989 to 1999 as commissioner responsible, first of all, for competition and financial services, uh, and then external relations and trade policy, and which, as some of you may recall, Paris in particular had some things to say from time to time, uh, and also serving as commission vice president. And I'm pleased to say that we uh, also have another very distinguished former EU commissioner in the audience, albeit not a British one, but now chair, amongst other things, chair of the LSE's Court of Governors, Peter Sutherland. So I think we have the makings of a very stimulating evening, indeed. And in keeping with our usual practice, Lord Britain has uh, agreed uh, to take questions after his lecture, and I hope you'll not be shy about coming forward uh, with those. So without further ado, and to answer the question, the UK and the EU, what has changed over 35 years Ladies and gentlemen, Lord Britain of Spenford. Uh, 
Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to be here at this distinguished gathering and have uh, not uh, previously been a part of a series of commissioners, so I hope that works out and after tonight you don't regret the whole idea. Uh, underlying Britain's current relationship with the European Union is a supreme irony, and as this lecture is not meant to be a detective story or a mystery, I might as well disclose my view of the irony right at the start, and it is this, that uh, over the last few years, there has been a huge and highly significant movement of EU policies in the direction that successive British governments have consistently advocated, enlargement of the European Union, economic liberalization, uh, balance moving more towards the member states, and yet, in spite of that really quite dramatic movement, Britain is still struggling in its relationship with the European Union, as is shown by the current battle over the ratification of the Lisbon Treaty. Why, then, is this the case? And what has changed since we first joined what was then the European Economic Community? To answer these questions, I think it is necessary to go back not only to the time when Britain joined, but even before the EEC was created. When the creation of the EEC was being discussed in the mid-1950s, British official observers of the process famously derided it, not believing that anything would ever come of it. They totally underestimated the determination of Western European countries to create institutions and structures which would finally prevent war between them and create an integrated European economy. And indeed, by creating an integrated European economy, make war impossible. And the tendency to underestimate the political will behind the European project has been the hallmark of British attitudes to Europe for most of the time since then. Nonetheless, the pull of a steadily uniting Western Europe at the time was too great to resist, both in terms of the risk of British loss of influence and the risk of not benefiting from an integrated European economy. And as a result of rational calculation, it was those considerations that eventually won the day, in spite of the feeling that which still existed at the time that we had won the war, some of the countries that we were joining had uh, lost it, and in spite of the pull of the Commonwealth, which in those days was largely the old white Commonwealth. It's fair to say, though, of course, that the suspicions and doubts were not all in one direction. Uh, General de Gaulle had a thing or two to say about his view of Britain and indeed vetoed Britain's membership. Nonetheless, on both sides of the channel, the head ultimately prevailed over the heart. We had a go at a lesser entity. We created the European Free Trade Association, and it wasn't enough. But it's fair to say uh, that when we decided to join, it was and has been since an affair of the head rather than an affair of the heart. Uh, there has been always an aversion to the more symbolic manifestations of European Union. Flags and anthems have even been 
Today, one of the things that uh, people seem viscerally to have problems with uh, and uh, uh, insisted on removing from the first draft of the current treaty. Why is that so? The reason, of course, uh, is historical. Uh, we in this country have, of course, suffered terribly from Europe's wars and have participated in them. We have not escaped huge damage to our own shores, but we've not had the experience, at least not for a thousand years, of enemy feet trampling over our shores as conquerors. Uh, and I think that is probably the main reason behind this uh, lingering feeling uh, of uh, lack of any kind of emotional involvement with the European project, although amongst what I would see as the wiser sections of the community, a support for it. And that feeling continues today. But I've never really been worried about it, because long as the rationality is real rationality and involves one to believe uh, in a full-hearted participation, then uh, the fact that some of the idealism, which certainly at the start uh, was reflected in the European project in continental Europe, doesn't exist in this country, I don't think it matters. Indeed, I'd go further and say that a combination of British pragmatism and continental idealism can be a globally winning combination. Of course, nowadays, some of the Eurosceptics would like to have you believe that when we did join, uh, the membership of the European Economic Community uh, was presented as a purely economic, free-trading enterprise. Well, the very fact that we had to leave EFTA in order to join the EEC itself proves that that wasn't the case. But I have rather good evidence from a rather unexpected quarter. Enoch Powell, uh, who obviously had his own reasons for saying it, but he said in discussing uh, Britain's membership of the European Union in 1971 uh, in the House of Commons, it would have been possible and lesser men might have been tempted to present the issue in short-run terms of mere economic expediency. Mr. Heath and Sir Alec Douglas Hume have not done this. On the contrary, they have stressed that the community is a political community, that in their, their view, the object and justification of the community and of British entry are nothing less than the political unification of Western Europe, and they have exhorted us to think not in terms of the next few years, but of coming generations when that unity should be complete. And reading from Hansard, I see no intervention from the government front benches denying that that was what was happening. So we eventually joined, and the Conservative Party at the time was in favour. The official Labour position was hostile. But there were minorities, substantial minorities, but nonetheless definitely distinct minorities, on each side of the political divide taking a different view, uh, and the liberals, uh, smaller in number then than they are now, were consistently in favour. And then in 1975, after the Labour government returned, as a political device, Harold Wilson had a referendum, not on whether to join, but whether to stay. And that was, uh, I think, a political device. But as far as I was concerned, 
The interesting thing about it is not the political motivation uh, that led to such a referendum, the only way of keeping the party united with the unique device of allowing cabinet ministers to support opposing sides of the field, but the interesting thing was that if the polls were to be believed at all, at the beginning of the campaign, the majority was two to one against Britain's continued membership of the European Union. And in the end, the vote was two to one in favour. Why did this happen? And what lessons are there to be learned from it today? I think the reason for why that happened was, a cent was twofold. Firstly, uh, because in the context of a referendum, formal, public, uh, test of opinion, there were strict rules, for example, for the BBC and the broadcasting media to provide equal time for the, each side of the argument. Uh, and also, uh, the uh, fact of the matter was that the argument was put over a protracted period in extenso. And that's something which is rare in British politics because mostly the arguments about Europe are put in terms of sound bites, and very short ones at that. And we, of course, have uh, media uh, where the Daily Telegraph in those days uh, and the Murdoch press uh, still today uh, were violently and consistently anti-European uh, and, of course, contained papers at all ends of the cultural spectrum, if that's what you want to call it. Uh, but uh, during the course of a referendum campaign, the arguments had to be put at length, and the result was as I described. The second uh, reason, I believe, and I have some evidence of an anecdotal kind of support for this, uh, is uh, that uh, the people who were against joining were not as popular as the people in favour. In those days, Michael Foote and Enoch Powell on different sides of the political spectrum were leading the charge against Europe. And I remember I was a newly elected member of Parliament and went up to Whitby in North Yorkshire, which is quite a remote part of the country. Uh, and there, uh, North Yorkshire had voted by a larger percentage than any other county in favour of uh, uh, membership of the European Union. Europe economic community. And there happened to be an all-party, non-party, mayoral reception in the town of Whitby itself that evening. And rather tentatively and carefully, uh, once I knew that the result was without question, I allowed myself to ask discreetly, uh, why did they think it was that Yorkshire, North Yorkshire, had voted so overwhelmingly in favour of membership of the European Union? And the answer was absolutely clear. They didn't like Michael Foote or Enoch Powell. Uh, whom they regarded as extremists, uh, and that's why they voted the way that they did. Of course, this happy event was far from the end of the story, and the political evolution continued, and Margaret Thatcher's uh, visceral hostility towards the European Union was concealed in the early years of her period in office because of the benign influence of the Foreign Office and her colleagues, which uh, managed to persuade her that expressing her instincts was not the best way of governing the country, dealing with her European partners, or even winning elections. But as she stayed in office longer and longer and became more convinced that her instincts were a sounder basis for politics than the advice of either her colleagues or her officials, 
the genie came out of the bottle uh, and her true views were reflected in such instances as the Bruges speech where she gave full vent to her true views. And then uh, that happened, it led to her own destruction in the end, and John Major came to power. And then the divisions in the Conservative Party where there was a, a significant number of people who were more interested in maintaining the purity of their um, Eurosceptic credentials than keeping their own party in power, led to the government being torn to bits over this issue. At the same time, Labour was turning round. And it is extraordinarily rare for one to be able to put one's finger on a single episode which had a determinant effect but I do think that Jacques Delors' speech to the Trade Union Congress did have a seminal effect in Labour thinking because what he was actually saying was that if you have a Conservative Party in power, it can do anything. It can destroy all the things that you believe in. But if you uh, are, are members of the European Union, there are certain fundamentals, social fundamentals, he would say, uh, which the European Union will protect uh, and no government will be able to do that, change it. Uh, and that had a very profound influence, whether right or wrong, uh, on the Labour Party. Meanwhile, while the political arguments continue to run, at official level, both in Brussels and in London, the British bureaucracy had moved into action in a remarkably positive and effective way and British politicians who were actually involved with the EU operated in a perfectly normal way. Britain was always seen and known to be emotionally unenthusiastic and unlikely to support major further integration, especially of a political character. But huge rows were rare. The row over the uh, rebate, the budget rebate, was an exception rather than norm. And British officials were respected for the efficiency and fair-mindedness that they brought to bear and had prominent positions in the Commission, including, uh, of course, David Williamson, uh, who was the uh, Secretary General. It was amusing uh, to note that as a condition of his being given that appointment, uh, he had to uh, speak uh, when announcing the order of business in the Commission in French. It was a small price to pay, but symbolic of the way the European Union operated in those days. And, of course, representing Britain in Brussels, we had a series of extremely skilled uh, um, permanent representatives, uh, David Hannay, John Kerr, Stephen Wall, who were very respected uh, in uh, the halls of Brussels, as well, of course, uh, as commissioners such as Arthur Cofield, who was the creator, inventor, and forcer through of the single market program. And the civil service itself was anxious to ensure that Britons played a full part. They introduced, for example, what was known as the fast track scheme, the best example of having your cake and eating it. Uh, you could uh, join the commission, and if you liked it, uh, you stayed, and if you didn't like it, you could go back to the British civil service a very enlightened policy uh, which uh, worked very well. So that by the time I arrived in Brussels at the beginning of 18, 1989, the institutional arrangements 
for Britain working within the European Union had been tried and tested for several years, and I never had any problems with them. I held regular meetings with the permanent representatives uh, who explained the issues that were coming up, which were of special interest to the United Kingdom, but they never unduly pressed me. They knew that I had taken an oath of independence to take instructions from neither government nor any private body, uh, and indeed, if they knew that I definitely disagreed with them on the point, they usually didn't even bother to raise it at all, as happened uh, when we moved towards the creation of, of the Euro. But they, as far as I was concerned, provided a useful analysis of the positions of the various member states as disclosed in the meetings of permanent representatives, the Corifer, and I explained where the Commission stood. It was a useful and successful working relationship. I also had regular meetings with the Cabinet Ministers, including the Prime Minister of the day, where we exchanged views, and on some points each tried to persuade the other to change positions, but there was never the slightest attempt to coerce me into taking a national line, which I often did not, as most notably was the case with regard to the Euro. And when the Blair government came to power, there was no change in this. And there was only one Labour minister, whom I shall not identify, uh, who could not avoid giving me the impression that he regarded me as a class enemy who should be regarded with the deepest suspicion. But he was very much the exception uh, to the rule. And I tried to maintain links not only with government but also with the parliament. I appointed the equivalent of a parliamentary private secretary, a backbench MP, uh, who would act as a link and tell me what the lads were saying, and I would have the opportunity of meeting MPs and giving my views as well. Industry and interest groups uh, were readily available to be seen both in London or in Brussels, and of course it was part of the job uh, to explain what was going on, to present uh, the Commission's position to one's own country, as well as uh, to see uh, how things were being perceived uh, in Britain and convey that back to Brussels. The European Parliament was becoming increasingly important. I saw them mostly during the week of the plenary session when the Commission moved on block to Strasbourg. I attended the meetings of the EPP, the European People's Party, as an observer, and it was very useful to do that, and saw groups of MEPs on particular subjects, but obviously kept particularly close contacts with the British MEPs and especially the Conservative ones. So in terms of the institutions, Britain's relationship with the EU was from the outset at all levels normal, professional, effective, and well-organized, even when political tension was high. Uh, it often was not, uh, and of course, let us not forget that even in the days of Mrs. Thatcher, uh, the support by the government for the Single European Act was very strong. Uh, and indeed, uh, members of parliament were invited to vote for the Single European Act with the backing of a three-line whip uh, from the government of the day. So the subsequent myth that some have tried to create, that Margaret Thatcher was somehow rather taken for a ride and didn't realize what she was letting herself in for, 
is one that anybody who knew her and worked with her would find inherently incredible and in fact had not a shred of truth to it. But obviously there were times when the tension was high at the time of the discussion of the rebate in the mid-1980s and it of course increased notably when Euroscepticism was given a great boost as in Margaret Thatcher's Bruges speech which was delivered a few months before I took up my position in Brussels. But even then, usually pragmatism was the order of the day, although sometimes Britain didn't get the credit for it, and sometimes Britain didn't deserve to get the credit for it. Uh, one of the things that I was trying to bring to fruition uh, when I arrived in Brussels was the completion of the agreement on the merger regulation, which Peter Sutherland was so much involved with before I came. And there, uh, what was proposed, of course, was that there should be a regulation under which the largest mergers would be determined as to whether they should be permitted or not by the Commission. That was the proposal. And British industry was strongly in favour of it because they were fed up going around from one country to another collecting approval of mergers or mobilising opposition to them. And they wanted a one-stop shop. But nonetheless, in any view, it amounted to a substantial transfer of sovereignty in the real sense to the Commission. And finally, um, the British government, under Mrs. Thatcher, with Nick Ridley, who was not exactly at the pro-European end of the spectrum of British ministers uh, as the Secretary of State, uh, saying yes. Now, you'd have thought that this was an opportunity uh, to come along to Brussels and to say, well, we've thought about it, we think this is in the interest of Britain, in the interests of Europe, and we're glad to join the consensus. Not a bit of it. Uh, the junior minister who came uh, to express his vote in favour of this uh, regulation didn't let anybody know until the last minute of his speech what way he was going to go, although I do know what he was going to do, um, and presented all the arguments against the virtual regulation very forcefully, and finally acquiesced uh, in the regulation going through with a gracelessness uh, which took a lot of beating. If ever there was a case for an own girl, if you decide, however reluctantly, to do something, you might as well get the credit and the kudos for doing it, but you would have thought, from the way he handled it, that Britain had said no. Well, nonetheless, the important thing was not the graciousness or otherwise of a junior minister of the Department of Trade and Industry, but what actually happened. And the fact of that is that the decision was taken to say yes. The relationship with the Conservative government was obviously made worse by the fact that Delors uh, was president of the Commission, and it was very easy to demonize him as a socialist, albeit of a mild variety, and even more inexcusable than being a socialist, was that he was extremely effective as president of the commission. But he was certainly no dictator. When the merger regulation came through and the first case arose where we had the opportunity and inclination to say no to the merger with the de Havilland case, where France and Italy were passionately against the commission saying no, he uh, uh, let it be known that he was uh, against it, but he didn't conduct a concerted campaign and there was a vote in the Commission and the Commission voted in favour of banning the merger and it did so.
Uh, and later on, when I moved on to trade uh, and the Uruguay round was being uh, discussed, uh, of course, uh, there were discussions in the Council of Ministers as in the Commission, but Jacques Delors did nothing to try to undermine my clearly free trading position. And when I rang him up from Geneva to say that we had a, a, a deal, uh, he readily acquiesced in the outcome and expressed his congratulations. And he was also fair-minded uh, about Britain in spite of the extreme provocation uh, given to him by the British press culminating in the son's disgraceful up yours de laws headline. Um, uh, and I remember him saying that he thought that the reports on European affairs of the House of Lords were the best study of European affairs from any parliament in any country in the European Union. Nonetheless, for all that, it was easy to present him as a bogeyman, and the Eurosceptics were largely successful in doing so. Successive governments, in my view, were gravely at fault in failing to stand up to the Eurosceptics, who inevitably grained ground. They were afraid. They were afraid in particular of the press barons. Occasional pro-European speeches were made, usually made abroad. Too often a defensive tone was taken and meetings with European leaders were presented as battles. At best, we have prevented the worst happening uh, or sometimes we've actually even won. So John Major's ill-advised use of the expression game, set, and match to describe what had happened after a council meeting and a treaty negotiation was one example, and Gordon Brown's uh, reveling uh, in the red lines in the latest treaty negotiations as being that which was most important for Britain to achieve, to stop something rather than to achieve something. Now, you could say that this uh, was a reflection of the confrontational nature of British politics, some have even said that the House of Commons, with people sitting on opposite sides, encourages this kind of thing. But the best illustration of the reluctance of pro-European views to come to the fore was in the case of Tony Blair. I have no doubt at all that Tony Blair, in his heart and in his beliefs, was certainly the most pro-European Prime Minister that we have had since Ted Heath. There was no doubt of his personal views. He would have liked even to join the Euro. And he kept saying in private that he was poised to conduct the great campaign, whether it was for the Euro or whether it was for the latest treaty. And he genuinely believed in his capacity to persuade people. And the history of the 1975 referendum showed that it perhaps was right that it was possible to persuade people. But in the last analysis, he was never actually ready to take on either Rupert Murdoch or Gordon Brown. And that is one of the tragedies of Britain's relationship with the European Union in more modern times. Meanwhile, in the EU itself, in terms of policy, the high watermark of the thrust towards greater integration was passed by the mid-90s. And the move towards a more liberal, outward-looking approach was gaining momentum. In the Uruguay round, as I've said, of course, there were arguments as to the line to take in both the Commission and the Council, but at the end of the day, I had full support for the greatest liberalisation of trade 
in the history of the world. And after that, which is much less known, in negotiations, separate negotiations, for the liberalization of financial services, of IT products, uh, and telecoms, three separate negotiations. In every case, the European Union was prepared to go further and faster than anybody else, certainly including the United States in the liberalizing direction. And I was able, as commissioner, to persuade them to go along with that. I couldn't force them to. They did it. They were persuaded. Europe was moving in that direction. And within the European Union, it has always been the March Maligned Commission that was leading the charge in favor of liberalization. We talk about liberalization of telecoms, the extent to which uh, they were not liberalized and the degree of resistance to liberalization would require a lecture in its own to describe. Air transport, the liberalization of air transport, and most recently, the best illustration has been the liberalization of services where uh, the commission put forward an extremely liberal proposal which was watered down by the member states but nonetheless still moved in the right direction. And of course, competition policy was very much the fore not only in terms of what was being done about mergers, but more important still, what was being done to limit the excessive use of state aid uh, and government subsidies of all kinds. And now, most recently, uh, we see in the Commission proposals for the liberalization of energy, the trend continues. French and the Germans don't like what is being proposed as far as unbundling is concerned and uh, trying to resist it. I don't know where that's going to end, but the fact of the matter is that the Commission is pushing it strongly in the direction of liberalization, and uh, the only question is how far will the member states go, but not the direction in which they will go. Uh, and indeed, as far as uh, Britain is concerned, uh, the underlying support, uh, as, far, as far as Britain is concerned, uh, the fact of the matter is uh, that um, we see what is going on, but we sometimes are extremely reluctant to recognize it uh, and to see it for what it really is, the true importance of, of what's going on. Uh, and now we have in Mr. Barroso, the most liberal president there has been, very much the preferred choice of the British government. And in the case of Mr. McCreevy, who deals with financial services, he has resisted again and again and again pressure for more intense uh, control and regulation uh, of financial services. And if now there is some pressure uh, universally in favor of more regulation, uh, you can be sure uh, that McCreevy will do as little of it as he can get away with. But above all, if we're talking about the movement of the European Union in the direction of Britain and Britain's ideas, uh, enlargement is the locus classicus. That was a major British objective. Now, let's be honest. For some people, uh, it had a nefarious motivation. They thought that if Europe uh, increased in membership, it would be weaker in its integrationist force. History belies that, but I have no time to go into that. But for the most part, it was a genuine belief that we had a moral obligation to admit the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, which had been under communist yoke for so long, and for whom we had shed so many tears 
when they were there and not able to do anything about it. And I can assure you that uh, even when I came to the Commission, there were plenty of people who either directly or indirectly did not want uh, the countries of Central and Eastern Europe to join the European Union. All kinds of alternatives were proposed, all kinds of wheezes were devised to try and stop it happening. But it did happen. We won the day. And the interesting thing is that whether you're talking about internal liberalization or whether you're talking about the progress towards enlargement or anything else, in the British press, the individual proposals are reported, if you read certain papers like the Financial Times, and commented on. But the picture never came together as a whole in the British media. The negative, generalized comments still prevailed, and the carping tones of many, if not most, politicians continued. And the irony is that if the increasingly liberal thrust of the European Union seemed not to be noticed in the UK, it was certainly noticed elsewhere. During the French referendum, one of the main reasons why the vote against the treaty was no was because of a widespread feeling that France had lost control of the European project that Europe was no longer uh, written uh, in France's image, but had been captured by the Anglo-Saxon rivals, and even the English language prevailing because of the Eastern Europeans and the Scandinavians was a sore point as far as the French were concerned. Uh, and in the campaign, the French Eurosceptics said all this quite openly, and the truth of the matter is that they had a point or two but nobody saw it in this country, or very few did. So if asked the question, what has changed over the last 35 years, my answer is the EU has changed very much, gradually but dramatically. But the British perception and attitude towards the EU have not kept in pace with the change. And the UK is still uncomfortable with the UK, EU, in spite of it moving so far and so fast in Britain's direction. And the UK has at times risked seeming semi-detached because of the combination of historical factors, especially the hostile media and the lack of courage of political leaders. But I will tell you that although it may not the second sound it, I am an incorrigible optimist. The underlying support for the European Union is there, and it is best illustrated by the fact that no serious politician dares to say in this country, let us leave the European Union, even if one knows that there are quite a few who would love to say so and to do it if it was politically realistic. The fact that it is regarded as the kiss of death to say that is a very cheering thought. Uh, and also, I personally have found that whenever the opportunity is presented itself as ages ago in the case of the referendum, but more recently, before a serious audience to present not just sound bites, but uh, a full case and a full argument, I've always found a surprisingly responsive audience, with a typical response being slightly rueful. Hmm, I didn't know that was the case. Uh, and I think that that is of some significance. Now, the immediate prospect of a more positive view prevailing quickly uh, is perhaps not good. The debate over the ratification of the Lisbon Treaty will certainly shed more heat than light, 
especially if it focuses on the question of whether or not there should be a referendum, which for me isn't a problem because I was never in favor of a referendum in the first place. But if that hurdle is surmounted uh, and the treaty is duly ratified, there won't be further talk of institutional or, or constitutional change for several years. There's an absolute consensus on that point. And if that happens, the European Union can, should, and will focus on issues of huge importance which are seen as such by the public. Global warming, the security of energy supply, environmental issues more broadly, and relations between Europe and the new giants of China and Russia and India. And on all these issues, it does not require the brain of a genius to see that Britain on its own cannot achieve much but in the EU, with Britain as a prominent, positive and active player, Britain can make a significant impact. The EU has moved a huge distance in the direction that Britain has wanted to go, but there's still scope to go much further, and we should be pushing and pressing for us to do so. The reform of common agricultural policy is one example. There's been much reform, more reform, uh, than people would have you believe. You've only to go to my own old, very agricultural constituency and ask the farmers there, and there's no doubt about it. But there is still a long way to go. And the fundamental truth is this. It is not in the least surprising, but it is the case that the extent of our influence in Europe is directly dependent on the extent of our commitment to Europe. Uh, and you're seeing now uh, the opposition may prevail, it may not prevail, to Tony Blair becoming the first president of the European Council, uh, in every other way well qualified, but um, uh, the opposition uh, is there uh, because of the lack seen on his part as others of actual practical commitment to Europe. The European Union, though, too, has to learn the lessons of the past. You can't just ignore it when the people in two founder member states vote against the latest installment of the European project. The European Union has to listen to its citizens and focus on what is really important for them. And fortunately, there is a lot that is really important to citizens which Europe alone can effectively handle. And I believe that it is not unreasonable to hope that as a result of the Lisbon Treaty, if it is ratified and implemented, Europe will be able to handle the great international issues in a more united way and a more effective way. And then, with Europe being more effective, uh, with Europe focusing on the issues that matter to its citizens, is it unrealistic to hope that Britain will finally come to terms with its relationship with the rest of Europe and use to the full the huge opportunities that that presents for the benefits of this country, for the benefit of the EU, and to the benefit of the rest of the world. I am sufficient of an incurable optimist to believe that that hope is not an impossible one to see fulfilled. Thank you.
Lord Britain, thank you for, I think, what everyone would agree was a very rich talk, a very rich and stimulating talk. Um, as I mentioned, Lord Britain has kindly agreed to take questions as per our usual format um, and uh, usual practice. Please, please, please keep them short and punchy. Um, and if you could wait for the microphone to be brought to you, and if you could please say who you are, and if you wish to mention an affiliation or an institution, please do so. Thank you. Um, I suggest we take, take three, right, three questions, and, and perhaps I'll, I'll call them here. So, gentleman there, indefatigable questioner. We'll take a gentleman over there afterwards, and then gentleman over here. Thank you very much. My, my name's John Ewer. Uh, last month, uh, Malta and Cyprus joined the Euro. How much longer will it be before the other member of the British Commonwealth joins the single currency? Um, there's a gentleman over there, a gentleman at the back. Michael McGough. What chances do you think there are that Ireland will vote no uh, for the reform trade or Lisbon Treaty? Because it looks as though they're going to use it to get rid of Bertie Ahern rather than voting uh, for it. Thank you. And again, it was a gentleman. Uh, uh, Nick Bowen, graduate of LSE and uh, at the European Business School in London. Um, really just a question for you to speculate. Assuming that the Lisbon Treaty is passed, what do you think the major changes between the UK and the EU will be over the next, I, I won't ask you 35 years, but over the next five, assuming that Lisbon is passed and ratified by everybody. Right. The first question was, Malta and Cyprus have joined the euro. How long will it be before the UK does? Um, I can't give you a period of time, except that it will not be very quick. Um, but I can describe the circumstances. And I regret to say that the circumstances which would happen would be rather unfortunate ones for the UK because uh, Britain uh, is, as most countries are, inherently a conservative country with a small C uh, and will not go for big change unless it is obviously necessary. Uh, that was true in 1979 when the government, which I had the honor to be a member, came to power. Uh, they were only prepared uh, to accept major change under Mrs. Thatcher because things had got to the point of disaster. So I'm afraid my answer is that uh, although I'm strongly in favor of Britain going to Europe, and I think it's not difficult to point out the reasons why we would benefit from it, it's not sufficient to show uh, why we would benefit from it. You've got to have a situation in which the economic situation in the major countries of the Eurozone, and I'm not talking about uh, the more peripheral ones, uh, is manifestly better than the situation in the United Kingdom and is so for a reasonably substantial period of time. That will happen eventually, but I can't tell you when it will happen. But I'm afraid I don't see before that happens uh, that there will be a change because people will say, well, uh, we've not been in the Eurozone for quite a while and we're doing quite nicely. Why should we change? The second question is um, where, whether Ireland will vote yes or no in the referendum. Uh, I think uh, Peter Sutherland will have a much more informed view of this, which I can't believe 
uh, if true to form, he will be reluctant to share with us. Um, so I will leave it to him, except to say that if I were forced to answer in the absence of Peter Sutherland, he would have to be a most sincere, I haven't the faintest idea. But Peter certainly will, and we'll in a moment come to him. Uh, the third question is, what will be the major changes in the relationship between Europe, Britain and Europe if uh, the uh, ratification goes through? I think the major changes will be beneficial in terms of the relationship. They will be beneficial partly because we will be stopping talking about constitutional or institutional change for quite a few years, and that is a subject uh, which always has been the cause of controversy and disagreement. So I think that that disappearance of that subject from the agenda. And secondly, the entry onto the agenda of the other things that I was talking about, like climate change, relations with uh, China and India, uh, there, there isn't going to be a fundamental disagreement between Britain and Europe. We want the same things. And also, even the most reticent British government will have to recognize that things have to be done collectively uh, because individually no member state can possibly tackle those challenges uh, in an effective way. And I hope that the existence of the new machinery, which will probably, while it's coming into existence, cause a few wrinkles and a few arguments, will over the middle period and within the time scale of the question I asked, uh, I think will lead uh, to uh, an improvement in the uh, policy formation and implementation uh, of, for Europe on the world stage. And I think Britain will both participate and benefit from that. So as you see, my rosy optimism gets the better of me uh, in answering that question. But my healthy and well-founded agnosticism prevails when it comes to Ireland. And I hand over to Peter for that. Thank you. Thank you, Leon. Leon, thank you for a, an excellent lecture. Well, about the Irish situation, I assume that ultimately rationality must win in a referendum. And for a country that has 83% of its population, as against something like 30 here, believing correctly that the European Union is beneficial for their interests, in a country where every political party, except a, a very small and, in my view, a marginal political party like Sinn Féin, the only party that is against, it would seem to beggar belief that because of arguments relating to the personality of the Prime Minister or otherwise that Ireland could vote no. So I'm, at the end of the day, confident that the result has to be the correct result. Um, I should make one point of that. The Irish uh, Supreme Court has ruled that the government, qua government, cannot take a point of view political party that forms the government can do so, but must, out of its own resources, make its case. So the main political parties have to make the case. And the television and uh, radio and so on, which is state-run, has to present <laughs> the arguments equally in effect. I think it was a ludicrous decision by the Supreme Court because it means that all of the political parties in the Parliament who are elected bar one are in effect given only half the time to make their case against the case put by a tiny minority and marginal, marginal groups. 
But as I say, I think we will win. I would make one final, and I think we will win comprehensively if we fight. I believe we will uh, in, in, in Ireland for the, for the treaty. I would make a final point, which is that if in any one country, be it big or small, there is a vote which seeks to stop a treaty coming into existence, which in every other country of the European Union, the de democracies and governments want the treaty to come into existence, then that country has to be asked to solve the problem in one way or another. And that solution might be a very unpalatable one. There is now in the treaty a right to withdraw. And uh, in my view, whether it was Britain or Ireland or anybody else, one country, notwithstanding the French uh, and, and Dutch experience, were to vote no, they cannot expect to exercise a right to stop the peoples of Europe, the remainder of Europe, advancing further if they wish to do so. But uh, as I say, it's not going to happen, I hope, in the Irish case. <laughs> well, I, at this stage of the evening, can't resist even on so serious a topic, giving a frivolous answer, as I'm not qualified to give the serious one, and you've had a splendid serious one, and it is this. It was suggested that uh, one of the reasons why people might vote now is to get rid of Bertie Ahern. Well, they haven't succeeded in getting Bertie, rid of Bertie Ahern in elections for quite a long time now, but he is a strong candidate for being president of the European Council, and he can't become president of the European Council unless the treaty goes through. Okay. Thank you. Um, take some more questions. Um, at the front. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I think the, the underlying theme of this brilliant presentation is the matter of relative speed in the adjustment of the EU on the one hand and the UK on the other. Now, the, the interesting thing is that uh, what we're seeing now is that even a country like Denmark, I wasn't thinking of, of Ireland now, but even a country like Denmark is considering to um, do away with their opt-outs, uh, with the exception of the euro. Um, my question would be, do you believe that in the next three to five years, um, the, the, the partners of the UK, and it goes a little bit in the direction, the part of the UK would continue to be ready accept further exceptions um, of the type that were negotiated now with the adoption of the treaty. Um, this is something that has intrigued me for, 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 for many years for a variety of reasons I don't want to enter now. But um, it is there's a lot to do with this difference in relative speed between the UK and the UK and the Thank you. Thank you for your lecture. Would I be right in assuming that you would be in favour of Turkey joining the EU? Um, and um, Lord Britain, if I, if I may just use the abuse of Chairman's prerogative. Um, question I'd like, I'd like to ask you, if I may, was um, you talked at the end about um, the uh, clearly economically liberal agenda of the Commission these days. And I don't know whether I spent, it's because I spent too long sort of
toiling um, uh, on the uh, pro-European wing of the Conservative Party and clutching at straws. But I'm taking some comfort from what I think I've seen in some the re just quite recently um, in terms of the, uh, the there is much less demonization of the Commission now, and I think uh, the reason you gave has got a lot to do with it. There's a clearer, perhaps a clearer understanding that our arguments, the British arguments with the EU, are less actually with the Commission, the Brussels institutions, than sometimes with the behavior of other member states who we regard as misguided or too protectionist or whatever. Uh, and a clearer understanding that the Commission, at least, is broadly on the, economic, is on the economic liberal side. Occasionally, the odd thing comes out of the Social Affairs Directorate, but on the whole, uh, that is the case. And given that in this country there were always two strong, uh, different strands, I think, to Euroscepticism, one was a sort of a, a high sovereignty Sunday Telegraph type obje objection to European integration. The other one was an economically liberal sort of Sunday Times type objection, uh, which was namely social, socialism and bureaucracy by the back door and so on. And it seems to me that that latter one, which feared the undoing of the Thatcher revolution, was a particularly potent one, and that, a lot of that has gone. And there seems to be something slightly ritualistic about the nature of... Uh, I don't underestimate the extent of Euroscepticism. I still happen to think it's quite shallow, though, in this country. But there's something slightly ritualistic about the referendum campaign, which incidentally has not attracted anything like the number of the signatures to the petitions which the Telegraph Group um, has been organizing as compared with other petitions. And I'm just wondering whether things have slightly gone off the boil, but again, I may be clutching at straws. I don't know whether you think there's anything in that. Well, first of all, um, how much longer will other countries be prepared to accept opt-ins and opt-outs? Um, I think the answer is not much longer, if any longer at all. Uh, but partly, uh, it's not going to arise because if there are no more institutional treaties for several years, uh, there won't be uh, an opportunity to have such ones. But I think uh, we were reaching the outer limit of acceptability uh, in the last treaty, uh, and I think there would have to be some absolutely enormous prize uh, to be gained uh, for which you have to concede a further opt-in or opt-out for that to happen again. So I think we have reached the limit. Um, uh, Turkey, I am in favour of Turkish membership of the European Union as long as the conditions for it are met. And that is not a, a mealy-mouthed or weasel-worded statement, but literally the case. I think if uh, Turkey introduces the reforms that uh, are required uh, to be compatible with membership of the European Union uh, and makes the changes that are necessary, then ultimately Turkey should join uh, over a period of time. And it will take time, and the Turks understand that it will take time. So I'm in favor of that. Uh, I think the history of it is a slightly curious one in the sense that um, promises were made to Turkey 40 years ago uh, which were, have not been fulfilled. And finally, uh, one of the best uh, tactics, which I myself use on different contexts and occasions, was to say to people who felt that they had to pretend uh, to uh, want something but didn't really, okay, well, if that's what you want, I'll tell you how to go about it. And this is the way to go about it. The bluff has been called. And if now Turkey does proceed down the reform road, I think that it will be impossible to say no, ultimately. But Turkey does have to continue further down that reform road. Now, the argument about whether in the first place Turkey should have made this offer 
or whether you should have followed a more literally geographical definition of Europe, that's all water under the bridge. But this is where we stand now. And finally, uh, Mr. Chairman, um, yes, I do think that in the informed press, the demonization of the Commission has substantially diminished. It would be quite astonishing if that hadn't happened on economic grounds. Um, and I think that, but I don't think that that has trickled through very much to the more popular perception, uh, because it's still easy to get a cheap laugh uh, from some jive about the European Union, and politicians of both major parties have not hesitated to, to do so. Um, uh, you mentioned the, the, the sovereignty objection, um, and I think it, it leads me to make an, another point, which is this, that a lot, there is a, what you might call neo-Euroscepticism, and the neo-Euroskeptics are not so fussed about sovereignty, and they are prepared to recognize that the European Union uh, has done a good job in terms of uh, opening up markets, they might even be prepared to accept that uh, Europe uh, has uh, uh, done a good job in preventing war in Western Europe, but they regard that as all job done, mission accomplished, yesterday's business. And they therefore say, not so much that the European Union is wickedly trying to take away our nationality and our sovereignty from us, but that it's not the story in town, it's not what really matters. And what really matters is relations with China, relations uh, with India and so on. And they fail to go on to ask themselves, even if you accept that, and it's a gross oversimplification to say what really matters is relations with China and India, what on earth are you going to do about it uh, uh, from the point of view of one single middle-sized country? And the more that is uh, the new focus, the more important and relevant the European Union is. Uh, I remember when I was Secretary of State for Trade industry, briefly, admittedly, but nonetheless, I was Secretary of Trade and Industry, um, uh, I, um, uh, one of the issues we had with Japan was what was regarded as the unfair taxation of whiskey, which was taxed at a penal rate compared with what passed for whiskey in Japan called shochu, and we got nowhere with it. When I came to Brussels, we joined forces with the French who were complaining about exactly the same treatment of cognac. We took a case to the WTO. We won the case, Europe as a whole, um, and the two massively reinforced each other. Japan slightly uh, increased the uh, tax on the native grown product and massively reduced the tax on whiskey and cognac. And in the next quarter, the sales of whiskey to Japan quadrupled. So uh, that uh, was a real example. Uh, of, of the realities of the situation uh, and uh, what, what sovereignty is about and what it's not about. Okay, I'd like to take um, three more questions. The gentleman right at the back. Uh, about the aspirations for a common foreign policy for the European Union. Of course, uh, the trouble is when, the, when, it, when it came to a crisis, a huge inter-world crisis like the Iraq war, of course, we all know what happened, of course. Um, the, the, uh, the EU countries and counting in, of course, the, uh, the accession states, of course, it was like a, I know, it was a 50-50 split if you, if you count the, like Poland, the countries are, are about to join. I mean, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not quite sure what uh, Solana did at the time, given, uh, given that it was kind of a split through the middle. So, presumably, 
uh, with, uh, I, can I can envisage the same thing, you know, happening again when it comes to some kind of huge, huge world, world, world event um, in the future. Thank you. Yeah. Um, questions for this? Somebody? Um, I'll come back over there if I will. Some gentleman over there had caught my eye, so I think I must keep faith with him. My name is Ashley Meyer. If we were sitting in this lecture theatre in 1908, it would be exactly six years before the 1914 catastrophe, and then in 1945, Europe tore itself apart again. Do you think that the European Union does enough to blow its own country for the amazing achievements since then? Does the European Union do enough to blow its own trumpet um, for its amazing achievements? And we'll take one more question. I'd like to go back to the other side of the room. Um, Gentlemen. Yeah. University of Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, Lord Britain, this was an excellent uh, presentation of the strengths, current strengths of the European Union and the lack of perception, maybe, in Britain of the strengths. Uh, but uh, if that is difficult to communicate to the public, there is also the simple political message that while uh, the European Union could at a time be construed or seen from Britain as a French-German conspiracy or French-German axis that led the Europe forward, that image is harder to maintain today. The uh, leaders who stood for that have disappeared and, and there's a lot of room of maneuver for Britain in, in promoting not only its own interests but the right force for the European Union in the, uh, in a sense, uh, the discord or the lack of agreement between some of the other major countries. Doesn't that make an impression in Britain? Can I take those three? Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, as far as foreign policy is concerned, uh, it's explicitly said in the new treaty, uh, although you wouldn't think of it for some of the opponents, uh, that uh, it remains the right and entitlement of individual countries to have their own foreign policy. What the new treaty seeks to do is to increase the chances that Europe will have a common position on a particular subject. And that is not just a, a theoretical statement, but it's a reality. Because all the history shows that when Europe works together, it is not guaranteed to reach a common view, but more likely to reach a common view. And the best example of that is in the Balkans. Uh, not more than a decade ago, each of the member states the major ones, had its client states. One country supported the Serbs, another country supported the Croatians. And now that has completely changed. And the European Union, by working together and seeing its real interests, has actually had a strong and rather effective policy in the Western Balkans in former Yugoslavia. There's no guarantee that that will happen. And of course, it is less likely to happen when a major conflagration explodes suddenly. Uh, but it is more likely to happen as a result of the new institutions working together because foreign policy doesn't just come up from uh, uh, nowhere. It is uh, based upon perceptions built up over a period of time. So it won't, there's no guarantee that if there is a major disagreement and a major issue, Europe will speak as one. Well. But there is a greater likelihood that on more and more issues, Europe will. Second question was, do, does Europe blow its own trumpet uh, enough? Well, as far as this country is concerned, the answer is evidently not, because uh, uh, either it doesn't uh, and has not been, or blowing the trumpet is not sufficient and successful because of the 
situation that I've described it. But in all seriousness, whether more overt blowing of the trumpet would, benefit, would be beneficial, I'm not sure. What is necessary, frankly, is not that there should be more overtly European propaganda, but that those politicians, and there are not a few, who do believe in the importance of Britain's involvement with Europe, should have the courage to say so loudly, clearly, and frequently. And that will be better than European institutions blowing their own trumpet. Uh, finally, the Franco-German axis uh, having disappeared. Yes, it is true. Uh, and it is indeed the case that Britain stands a much better chance of getting its way than in the old days when the French and the Germans got together a week or so before the European Council, hatched up a policy, and that was it. Those days have gone. Uh, now that is something where the commentators can play an important role in pointing that out. It's obviously not exactly tactful or diplomatic for a British government or a British political party to say, your days are over, France and Germany. You no longer call the shots. You can't do that, although it's true. But I hope others will point out uh, the obvious uh, and thing, fact and the fact that that provides a, a beneficial opportunity for this country. Um, I'm going to take just two more questions and then we will have to draw things to a close. So if anyone else would like to... Um, there's a gentleman over there um, and the lady over there. You say that the EU has to listen to its citizens, and you've citizens in countries such as France being denied a referendum on a treaty. So is it the case that the EU should listen to its citizens and national government shouldn't? And they should just trust the government, make it parallel with the Iraq war, for example? if it was appropriate for me to ask this or not, and I don't. Of course it is. I, well, it, it may not be. <laughs> um, I, I managed a business in London years ago, a domestic employment agency, where back in the days when au pairs had to have visas to come in and all of that, and the discussion was whether England should join the EU and people were worried about Euro apples. You know, were we going to have to discontinue our British apples for, for European ones? And I've... I've, I traveled back and forth over the years and moved back five years ago. And what I'm seeing, and I'm not saying that this is a, the fault of the EU, but it's certainly there are enormous changes in Britain, enormous social changes in Britain. And, I've, and I'm seeing a country that I love, and I'm coming from a country that's had the most idiotic leadership on the planet for a while. Um, and I apologize for that. I didn't vote once. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, but I'm concerned because what I'm seeing in England, and, and particularly in London, is a growing sense of powerlessness on the part of individual people over their own lives to be in touch with institutions, to be, you know, the mail is laying all over the road with their personal records on it, and, and the, the, the huge gulf between rich and poor that's growing, and all of this. And, and one of the huge changes during this time is, is is the EU, and I don't know how much the EU has been a part of that, and I don't know if the EU can do anything about that or what responsibility the EU has with some of the economic problems of the average person in this country who is not fabulously wealthy and is having some right. problems. 
Um, well, the first question, I'm not sure whether that, uh, the, the suggestion that the uh, in, uh, listening to your citizens, uh, the contrast between Europe and the EU institutions um, and the member states, I don't know whether that is a disguised plea for a referendum here. Uh, perhaps it is perfectly legitimate. I am against a referendum because I do not believe that the referendum is the epitome of democracy. There are several different sorts of democracy, and I find it ironic that people in this country who are most proud of their history, and in particular the history of the British Constitution, should be keen on a referendum which is the negation of parliamentary sovereignty, because parliamentary sovereignty implies that you elect people uh, and you choose them on the basis of their policies and their judgment, and if you don't like them, you kick them out, you kick out the scoundrels. And a vibrant parliamentary democracy is inconsistent with frequent use of referendums because that is going over the heads of the elected, democratically elected people. So I'm against referendums on principle. They may sometimes be unavoidable, but the more you can avoid them, the truer you are to the model of parliamentary democracy, which is the hallmark of the British Constitution. Second question, uh, growing sense of powerlessness. Uh, is it the fault of the EU? Could the EU do anything about it? Well, it's caused by many things. Um, it's caused uh, by uh, global forces, which are difficult to control. Uh, it is caused, above all, dare I say it without wishing to be excessively partisan, by bad government because in a democracy, uh, people don't like what's going on, uh, it is the government that can change it. Could the EU do something about it? Well, here we have a real paradox, because by implication, the kind of things that you mentioned, and the kind of things that uh, would be required to deal about with them, would require massive extra powers for the EU, which is not what I'm hearing from the people of this country as being what people want. So I think it's a much, much wider problem, and I don't think the EU is the cause or the cure. Well, um, I think, I hope everyone will agree, we've had a really very, very stimulating um, evening and uh, an excellent hour and 20 minutes. We've had very good questions as well, and you've answered them very fully and interestingly and given us an excellent talk. Um, and we can only thank you, Lord Britain. Thank you. Thank you.